Welcome to Behavioral Grooves. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We are building a community of people who are interested in the positive applications of behavioral science to work and life. We do this through talking with interesting and insightful guests that often turn into very fun discussions. Yes, they do. And this was the case with Luke Batty. Luke is a product service consultant with a background in experimental psychology and innovation. Luke founded a behavioral design consultancy called Sprint Valley in the UK. That helps businesses use behavioral science and human-centered design to create better products and services for customers and employees. Well, we talked with Luke about his consultancy. We talked about papers he's written, net promoter scores, embodied cognition. My gut was telling me about that. (laughs) Of course. And one of my favorites was the booba kiki effect. Booba kiki. (laughs) Uh, And we had a lot of fun doing it. Of course we did. We always have fun doing this. So we had a lot of great conversation on a number of topics, but there were a few key topics that we end up grooving on at the end. One is about the peak end effect. Two is our remembered self versus the experienced self, which is really interesting. And of course, of course, we end up talking about priming. Of course, we would talk about I'm priming. I'm sorry. I just have to talk about priming all the time. <laughs> I'm sure you listeners are sick of it. Specifically, though, we talked about which is more impactful in driving our own behavior, self-primes or hidden primes. Yeah. You know, uh, one of the cool things when we got to music was talking about something that's kind of rare, and that is the impact that the Moog synthesizer had on musical history. The Moog synthesizer. Yeah. Very right. fun. All right. So we really appreciate you listening to Behavioral Grooves. Our community is growing, and you are a main reason for that. We would be grateful if you could help expand our community even more by recommending this or another Behavioral Grooves episode to a friend, or if you wanted, just give us a really good rating on Apple's podcast. That would be nice. And if you'd like to talk to Kurt or me about the kind of work that we do helping companies positively apply behavioral insights into their organization, don't hesitate to connect with us. You can reach us at Kurt at LanternGroup.com or Tim at BehaviorAlchemy.com. We'd love to help your organization improve your bottom line with a behavioral lens. So with that, please sit back with a fine peak end experience beverage and enjoy our conversation with Luke Batty. Welcome, Luke Batty, to the Behavioral Grooves Podcast. Good to be here, guys. We are excited. It is a very chilly day here in Minneapolis, and uh, and how are things in jolly old England? Pretty cold where we are as well. We're in a 400-year-old converted barn in the middle of the countryside in the in the middle of the UK. So I'm actually sitting here with my coat on and radiators around me right now. So I, I, <laughs> I, we're in the same place, I think. We're in the same place. Yeah, that's uh, we have some nice heat inside. It's just going outside here that we're we're a little worried about. All right, we start with a speed round. As anybody that's listened to this podcast knows, so Luke, we're putting you on the spot here. Bicycle or unicycle? Unicycle. All right. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay. Life without a mobile phone or life without a laptop? Life without a laptop. An original Moog synthesizer or a sampling machine? Original Moog. All right. <laughs> Come on. Cool. Oh, man, you guys just went deep on me on this music thing. <laughs> we will uh, We will definitely come back to that when we start talking about music. Good. Uh, and we'll have to educate Kurt about what an original Moog 
is actually all about. So, uh, so this will be good, and maybe some of our listeners as well. There you go. Um, but but let's start let's let's start off by talking a little bit about um, some of the work that you're doing, and uh, tell us a little bit about. Uh, actually, let's start with Sprint Valley. Tell right. us a little bit about uh, Sprint Valley. Sure. So uh, I set up Sprint Valley 18 months ago. Uh, we're a consultancy. Uh, we do a blend of uh, training with clients around behavioral science and innovation process. Uh, and then we also run consulting projects with clients who maybe need to develop a new product, develop a new service, or, or make an existing one work better for their customers or for their business. Um, we try and bring together uh, leading behavioral scientists and I guess what you'd call user experience designers. Um, and then we bring them together on projects and yeah, and, and deliver those out for clients. So, um, yeah. And what, what got you interested? What was, what was the hook? What was the catalyst? Oh, that's a great question. Um, so I, I studied experimental psychology um, and uh, you know, thoroughly enjoyed the kind of the undergraduate degree, got into the marketing field and, and had an opportunity with a client about three years ago to start applying some of the kind of behavioral science principles onto a live consulting project and just had phenomenal results. And it, it got me really excited about the opportunity to help businesses take advantage of some of these, uh, these concepts and these ideas and try and pull them out of academia and, and make them a little bit more practical and, and hands-on and use them as a, as a creative tool, right? I, I, the way that I see it is, um, you know, behavioral science, behavioral economics, all of this, this good stuff. These are, these are tools in your tool belt to help you solve problems and, and think about things from a, a human perspective. I think as long as you're uh, trying to work in that intersection between what's good for a customer and what's good for a business, and, and there is always a good overlap there, you know, I think it's, uh, you know, it's a great creative toolbox to think about developing new solutions kind of matches with behavioral grooves and applying behavioral science yeah, to work. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, I, I, I think that the, the moment, though, for me was, uh, the you know, the Buba Kiki experiment? So, oh, you're going to have to tell us. Yeah. Oh, God, this is, like, this is like my favorite party trick, okay? So um, the, the, Buga, the Buba Kiki experiment is you show people uh, a picture and maybe we can link to this in the, in the show notes, but you have two different, two different shapes on screen, right? You've got one that's kind of wavy and curvy and one that's got sharp edges. And you ask people and you say, okay, imagine you've landed on an alien planet. I want you to tell me which of these organisms is called Kiki and which one is called Buba. Oh, yep. Okay, and 99% of the time, people say that the rounded shape is booba and the spiky shape is kiki. And it's this kind of question that has zero logic, and yet people and audiences are able to answer it, you know, within milliseconds instinctively with absolute confidence. And, uh, you know, you ask people why you, why you answered that way, and people can't explain <laughs> why they came to that answer. So they say these really weird things like, Kiki is a spiky sounding shape or booba sounds round and um, you know, it's all about system one, system two. You know, we look inside ourselves for answers and the reason that we uh, you know, associate booba with a round shape is we make a round shape with our mouth and so we kind of, that triggers over to, to booba. And kiki, when you say kiki, you actually bare your teeth slightly and activates concepts of biting and sharpness and, and spikiness. And uh, uh, for me, it's just a really beautiful example of 
that idea of system one, system two, right? Uh, so yeah, so kind of getting exposed to that. And then I just thought this is just the coolest stuff. So uh, the so journey started there. Cognition, even in, in our language. Yeah, uh, big time. Acquisition. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. We did a um, interview. One of our very first interviews was, was Aaron Snyder from Lexicon. Okay. Uh, which was this branding company. And he brought up, and he might have even mentioned Ruby Kiki. I, I'm, I'm I drawing up, I talk about the same concept. And, you know, and again, thinking about it from a branding perspective, what are you trying to convey with your brand? Mm. And understanding what that brand strategy and the brand messaging needs to be, and then naming your, your brand appropriately using either the softer sounding smoothly, the boobly kind of thing, or yeah. that harsher, you know, more angular elements kiki. of the kiki yeah. kind of components. Yeah, and, and, absolutely. You know, they use that as part of, I mean, that's what his company did. That's you know? incredible. And, you know, and you're absolutely right. Those sounds, they prime for certain other concepts, right? And they set an expectation then of what you're going to experience next. And that becomes your lens for experiencing that brand or that service. Yeah, I think it's, Tough job though, coming up with names. That's uh, that's that's not an easy thing to do. Uh, certainly, mm -hmm. certainly with children coming along, that's for sure. <laughs> well, if if uh, if Booba and Kiki are, are are if people respond within milliseconds, this yeah. it, that's it's all system one, isn't it? That's totally. all. Yeah, totally, absolutely. There's, yeah, there's, there's no logic. There's no logic. I mean, and and it's it's a really wonderful thing. I mean, I've done this with audiences of hundreds, and people, you know, people, you say, okay, put your hand up if you think this one is Kiki and this one is Booba. And everybody, you know, there's some people that kind of are contrarian, maybe like 5%, but 95% of people can answer it. And then you say, okay, look around the room and everybody's answering the same way. And you say, okay, so why, why have you answered that? And then people just confabulate these, these reasons why they've come up with it. So yeah, the rationalization afterward is actually the yeah, really interesting part. Because how do you, how, how do we justify <laughs> our, our, our oh, rapid decision? So it's great, yeah, absolutely. And uh, you know, people think that you've like spiked the coffee at break time, but um, yeah, it's, it's a fun one. You've made, you made conspiracy theorists out of all of those people. <laughs> oh man! All right. So, Luke, you wrote uh, a blog about the future of McDonald's and the restaurants and various different things, and I thought I found it really fascinating. So, I'd like to kind of talk a little bit about that. As you were, yeah. you know, kind of, you know, talking about uh, what is going on in that world of retail restaurants, basically, yeah. and kind of some of the future of technology, but what that means from a behavioral science perspective, and and, and the consumer experience, yeah. of course, as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, I, I, let me like zoom out a little bit from that and explain how how that article came about. That might that might be helpful. So. So about three years ago, we had an opportunity to work with a, a pretty large stadium here in the UK, um, and they had this challenge. Now, I'm not a sports guy, right? Um, but they were a, a football stadium, uh, and their challenge was that come game day, they'd have 60,000 fans arrive at the stadium, and at the halftime break, which is maybe 20 minutes in the middle of the game, only 30,000 people could ever get to the front of a queue to, to buy anything. Yeah. And so we kind of thought, well, this is a really cool challenge. This is, uh, this is really interesting, right? So we went in there. We were looking at CCTV footage of how queues formed. We were building out simulations of different queuing styles and uh, seeing how that would affect the speed of queues. And um, what we came up with was this model that kind of said, well, look, 
like an average transaction is maybe 60 seconds. Yeah. You get to the front of the queue, you give your order, the person goes away, collects your beer and your food and whatever else comes back, you pay. And that's maybe 60 seconds. And we kind of said, well, look, if we could get that down to 30, then we could put through 60,000 people, right. Without any new uh, capacity needing to be added to the stadium. And, um, one of the things that we noticed when we were observing how people were kind of were queuing and ordering was that they'd look at the menu and they'd stall making their decision. And that couple of seconds where they're kind of looking around, trying to work out what they want while they're ordering at a cumulative level, like really adds up and eats into the overall capacity. So we kind of thought, okay, well, this is interesting. I wonder if there's a way that we could get people to make their decision faster. And so we thought, well, who are experts at this? You know, let's go check out how McDonald's, KFC, Burger King, how these guys structure their in-store experience and see if we can learn anything useful to try and improve the result of this stadium we're working with. And so we spent time, uh, real tough job, obviously, eating all this, all, all this fast food. We, we, we spent time in these, uh, in these restaurants and we looked at the psychological literature and we were able to kind of cross-reference uh, some of the academic uh, ideas with what they were doing in store. So, you know, things like the way they were sequencing information within the store, the way they were setting expectations, they, the way they were causing you to uh, focus on certain products before other products. All of these things, or all of these things change how quickly we make decisions and, and ultimately how much we're, we're willing to pay for things. So we, we, uh, we kind of, derived a whole bunch of principles, took them back into the stadium, their spend per head went up, the, the, the queue speed increased, and um, we ended up getting referred and working with a whole bunch of stadiums in the US, uh, some of which are probably local to you as well. Um, and anyway, after all of that, I, I wanted to kind of make the knowledge public, and I was just really interested to kind of put it out in the world. And so, um, you know, we, we documented out uh, McDonald's Restaurant of the Future and how all these different features come to life in store. And it's a really interesting story. You know, if you look at something like McDonald's a few years back, they were, their, uh, their sales were struggling. They were flatlining in most countries around the world. And actually, this new restaurant of the future concept that they have released it seems to have been the thing that's really turned around performance. Yeah. I, I find it fascinating. You talk about just their signage that they have in, in the restaurant. Yeah. And well, and talking about with the new electronic signage and what they they show and they preference and, and what's larger and, you know, the vivid component of, of those aspects, um, as well as then showing things again from that sequencing perspective, right? Absolutely. And I know, um, talk a little bit about that because I, I actually get frustrated with those signs, but that's probably because I'm old and, and curmudgeon -y, But um, so, so, so I guess one of the first principles is that, the thing that you want customers to buy needs to be one of the first things that like gets onto their consideration list. So there's this great experiment. I, I'm, I'm not going to try and remember the, the, the name of the, the, the psychologist that did it, but they were looking at, uh, it was a US experiment. They were trying to work out in a buffet, what do people normally order? And what they found is that it's 70% of the time people ordered the first three items that they came to in the line. So you could change the items at the beginning and they tended to be the things that people would end up buying. Right. So it's, I guess what I do first. Yeah. It's like primacy effect. Right. And, and it's, uh, and, and it's really, really powerful. So, you know, one of the things that you would look at inside a restaurant is that the, the products that you really want customers to buy, make sure those are some of the first things that people see. So how do you draw attention to those early in the experience? 
And you could do that in terms of the products that are most profitable if you wanted to do that. Well, equally, you could do that in terms of the products that drive the highest customer satisfaction. You know, the, the products that customers enjoy the most, right? Let's try and get more people having those because that's going to give an overall better experience. But what McDonald's are doing in their stores, as, as, as far as we can see from the outside, and important to, to, to mention, we obviously don't, uh, we, we kind of don't work with them, is that um, they, uh, on, on their signage as you walk into the restaurant, they really try and prime you for certain types of purchases. So an example would be if you go in there at breakfast time, you won't see them priming for a single item purchase, right? So they're not going to just advertise a single cup of coffee or a single McMuffin or whatever it might be. What they'll do is prime you for a, a multi-item purchase. So you'll see imagery that very early on has no pricing information whatsoever. It's just pictures that's showing you, um, you know, to buy your hash brown, your coffee, your sausage McMuffin, or, or whatever it might be, right? And that's the thing that they're trying to set as your as your anchor as you move through. As you move into the store, you've got the actual signage there. And um, one of the things you'll probably notice, and I mean, they update their signage quite a lot, is that Pricing information is not the first thing you notice when you go in, right? It's the pictures of the actual food itself. And there are some fast food chains that really do focus on the pricing. And I'd, I'd say it's probably a negative thing. So what they're trying to do is take that psychological pain of spending money and make that a secondary part of the decision. So they're essentially saying, look, choose based on what you think looks good. Don't worry about the money part. Uh, is the is the overarching thing there and some quite clever things they do in terms of variant pricing so an example would be uh, a, 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 an egg mcmuffin for example might be two pounds 69 they advertise the egg mcmuffin with bacon as just being another an extra 40p right an extra like 40 cents um, so rather than thinking about that as the total cost of the products they just make the decision about the variance in pricing which is really smart right and like why, why isn't that uh, the right way to do it? I don't think that you can, you can pass a judgment on it. From a customer's perspective, that simplifies it. That makes it more of a system one decision that I can make when I'm there. And uh, nobody wants to deliberate. Everybody wants to get off the fence and have the decision made. So for me, these things all add to a really great hedonic, uh, hedonistic experience. I think, they're, uh, I think they're very good at delivering that, that's for sure. Yeah, it, it, it's very interesting. So I have so my actual issue with 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 the whole thing is actually the pricing component because I have gone in and I am I know what I want to order. So I'm you know if I go into a fast food restaurant, mm -hmm. usually it's I've had forty five plus years of experience. That's and it. Yeah. I'm stuck in my status quo. Now I know they're trying to push me out of that. They want me to McDonald's wants me to not buy the Big Mac meal. They want me to buy that new deluxe burger with that's whatever it. else is on it. And so that's what they're showing. Absolutely. The, you know, the Big Mac meal or whatever is down there. And then I can't find, all right, so how much do I need to put, you know, get out from a cash perspective or what's going to go on my, my thing? Actually, it makes mo no difference for me. I buy it anyway. Yeah, you know, you, you make a really good point there. And I think that's the real challenge for, a, you know, we've all grown up with McDonald's, right? We've, like you said, we've got had like 20, 30 years of probably ordering the same kind of thing. Mine's like a Big Mac, large Big Mac meal with a chocolate milkshake. That's my, that's my go-to. <laughs> and, and so how do you, how, but how do you break people out of that? You know, you want to get your customers spending a little bit more, maybe make a little bit more profit on them, and that, which is, businesses need to do that. What do you do? And it's about how do you shift out of that status quo bias? And I think the way that they've tried to do that, you know, as you said, with developing new products that ultimately, hey, the products have got to be good. Otherwise, nobody's ever going to come back and spend again. But trying to really turn the volume up on uh, on those new products in store. You look at some of the new menus they have now and 
those traditional Big Macs and all the rest of it, they probably take up like 10, 15% of all of their internal um, you know, digital screens. Yeah, and you kind of go, well, that, that really says something, right? You're trying to say, how can we get people looking at these new products and, and trying them? And not everybody's going to do it, but there are customers that do want to try new stuff. And, um, and I think it's clever. I think it's clever. I think, to your point, there's nothing wrong with trying to get people to try something new. So it's, no, it's you, the frustration. You can always factor. go back. You know, you can always go back to the uh, your previous I, order, right? And, and particularly in a, a cost exp, uh, component, where you know what the the uh, investment that I'm making is not astronomical. If I buy something new and I hate it, my gosh, I'm out five bucks. You know, yeah, so. Well, nor, nor is the difference between, I mean, all of McDonald's meals are within a pretty narrow. Yeah, 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 exactly. So uh, yeah. really. Like, you got it. But, you know, all they need to do is get, you know, a small percentage of customers moving up into the new product. And, you know, you've got what well, is the statistic, something like 1% of the world's population will eat McDonald's today. And we, we, we worked it out. And actually, if you multiply that up, you've got uh, more people looking at a McDonald's menu every day than checking it or in a month, sorry than checking in on Facebook or Amazon. It's like, it's crazy. It's huge. You know? these, small, these, small, these small improvements and just shifts in behavior could have really, really big effects. And anyway, their share price has been, has been impressive. It's, it seems to have recovered very well since it all launched. But I mean, so, so we, we kind of, that article came out um, at the end of last year and uh, it, it was really interesting. We had some, some interesting companies contact us off the back of that. And one, I won't, I won't, I won't mention who, led to a project about you know, really trying to take some of these concepts uh, further. And I think you know, one thing that it, it really brought up was this idea of how peak end plays a role within restaurants. And uh, you know, I know that you guys have kind of touched on peak end before on the, on the show. And uh, there's some really interesting effects that happen. So there's a, I'll give you an example. There's a restaurant here in the UK called The Fat Duck. Okay. And it's, okay. uh, it's run by a, a, a chef called Heston Blumenthal. And this is uh, like a three Michelin star restaurant, right? You've got like, you can only book, I think, three months in advance. And so okay. uh, I, I managed to go there when I, for my 30th birthday a little while back. And um, the way that it worked was you call up and you know that you're going to be waiting on hold for about 45 minutes. And... Uh, what they do, right, as a, as a small little flip here in terms of their, uh, their peak end, is rather than you sitting on phone and then saying, hey, your call is important to us, they actually have um, somebody reading Alice in Wonderland down the phone. So, <laughs> so you're just sitting there listening to this story, this really beautifully narrated story, and by the time that somebody picks up the phone, you're actually kind of a little bit pissed off because you're at a really good part of the story and you could do with a couple more minutes. The queen is coming. Yeah, exactly. And it's this idea that, um, you know, with peak end, I think people sometimes get confused and think you've got to deliver this absolutely incredible experience to create a peak. Actually, it's about creating a departure from expectation. And so those moments in the experience where there's low or negative expectation are actually probably the easiest places to focus on to just create a bit of a shift. You know, don't get me wrong. The food was great. The service was great but I've told thousands of people about waiting on hold <laughs> at that restaurant because, you know, they just play with that peak in a really, uh, in a really interesting, innovative way. It doesn't cost a lot to do. 
Um, it's, it's very clever. Uh, Rory Sutherland once said uh, that the UK was looking at spending uh, a couple billion dollars to or pounds to to improve the speed of the channel, the train through the channel okay. by a matter of uh, 10 or 15 minutes. Uh-huh. And he said 10 or 15 minutes. He said, why not just spend that couple billion pounds on supermodels? And have them in the trains, and no one will care if it takes fifteen. <laughs> well, very true. Yeah, very true. Yeah, time, time occupied moves faster. That's uh, that's for sure. But 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 you, when you talk about peak end, it's kind of getting back to the consumer experience, and and I want to link that back to what you were saying about um, about how we really don't want to use system two. We don't really want to have to be reflective yeah. when we're walking into a fast food restaurant. Totally. We want it to be. We want it to be a, a reaction, yeah. right? We want it to be automatic, basically. Yeah, uh, and, we don't want to think about it. And and, and, here, and here's the thing that, that we found on uh, on some projects recently, certainly in the in the restaurant space, is that physical restaurants have a memory disadvantage over takeaway delivery. Wait, yeah. Say that again. Say okay. It again. Okay. So so um, we ran a study that looked at the, uh, the drivers of net promoter score and, and visit frequency. Have you come across net promoter score before? Yeah. So like how likely are you to recommend this restaurant on a scale of one to 10, people scoring your nines and, eight, uh, nines and tens are your, your promoters, people scoring one to six, your detractors. We found that there was a, uh, a strong prediction of the memory uh, curve to net promoter score. So essentially where the peak was below expectation and the end was below expectation, net promoter score was extremely low, like maybe two to three. Where the, okay. where the peak was high, was high and above expectation and the end was above expectation, net promoter score was high, right? So it was like in the eights plus. And you have this very strong relationship between the essentially peak end experience and net promoter score and therefore their likelihood to visit the restaurant again in the next four weeks. And the things, the, the, the problem with the restaurant, with the fast food restaurant, is what? how does the fast food restaurant experience end? You're paying. Uh, after you've had your food. How does it end? What's the last bit? You toss your garbage and you walk out. Yeah, right. It's like garbage, or it's going and washing your hands and going to the toilet. So you've got, uh. you've got these two moments here that across thousands and thousands of customers, you've got this potential for negative variance because the bins could be overflowing or the toilets couldn't, might not be that clean. And it's only got to happen to a few people. And so, you know, one of the experiments that we're now running is, you know, if you can start to control these factors more tightly, the theory is then that that should improve the memory experience, which in turn should, in, should improve people's likelihood to, uh, to visit again. You know, look at Ikea as an example. Yeah. Why is there a cafe at the end of, uh, after the tills at an Ikea? It's controlling the memory. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it, it changes the way you reflect back on the fact that you've actually just walked through a warehouse and, and self-collected a whole bunch of furniture, but it's yeah. okay because I've had a cookie and a coffee. So, so it, yeah. and, and I got an ice cream cone. You yeah. Go. yeah, I mean, exactly, exactly. It was cheap and I'm tired, and there's all kinds of uh, benefits to that. So, I, so Luke, I want to go back to the, the research here on the net promoter score in the correlation to peak end, because yeah. that's really fascinating to me. Because I know peak end, peak end rule for we, we have talked about it before, but but basic the premise of this is that uh, our memories are are really impacted not necessarily by the overall experience if we were to 
have a rating throughout this experience of this whole thing about the average of that, but it's really influenced by the peak emotional experience and then the end. And if those two are raised up high, uh, you're going to have a much higher memory value, much more positive memory value of, of that experience. Um, and I have not heard of a net promoter score being correlated to this, but that's really interesting because that's the, that's the work that you know many organizations are looking at net promoter score as a way of saying these are elements that you know kind of predict as much as you can you know repeat purchases, variety of other factors yeah. on, on things like that. So um, you know how how did you do that, and what were some of the? I mean, can you go into any more detail? Yeah, sure. So um, the first part was asking customers to uh, identify their peak moment. So which part of this overall experience was above expectation okay. um, and uh, and then identify, self-identify for them what the end was. Essentially took those two moments as our peak and end. We then segmented customers based on whether um, their experience of the peak was below or above expectation, and whether their experience at the end was below or, or above expectation, you then have four different buckets you can put people in: below, yeah. below, 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 above, 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 below. Um, and then we looked at how their net promoter score changed as a result of being in one of those four groups. Okay. Wow. Um, and very simply, we were able to demonstrate that where <laughs> if we have a negative. Uh, below uh, below expectation peak and end you're yeah. far more likely to be at the bottom of the net promoter score um uh scale than if you yeah. have uh you know if you if you end high for example so and and, and, and you're right it, it's really interesting because you know there's so much focus in the world right now around uh you know making the customer experience better and i i get it but it's kind of like you know it's it's like kahneman says you've got the experiencing self and the remembering self and it, yeah. it, it feels like all the conversation is about um, making the experiencing self's experience better. And it's like, well, you know, that's a, the experiencing self has a 300 millisecond window of reality called now. It's, it's essentially it's a goldfish, whereas <laughs> it's, it's the remembering self that's telling stories about whether it was a good experience or not, or whether I want to recommend it or not, or whether I'm going to go back again. And, you know, actually, I think designing for the remembering self is is it's really interesting and potentially uh, commercially really interesting as well. And you were able to get all this through a single survey then with, with the, with these uh, participants. Yeah, so this, this is off a couple of, uh, a couple of projects. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That is just fantastic. That it's really, really, really interesting. Like, and, and we talked a little bit before we, we got on the show, just talking about, um, you know, using peak end rule just from that perspective of, I've used it in helping organizations look at incentive programs, and in particular travel incentive programs. Yeah. Uh, and again, what we see there is there's a huge opportunity for uh, you know these these salespeople or employees have won this trip, they go on this beautiful trip. You know, usually it should it's it's above expectations, yeah. and there's usually some high peak component. But at the end, you know, there's this you're dealing with oftentimes air travel and various different things, which yeah. are to your part kind of out of control. It's like throwing the garbage in the bin. Throwing the yeah. garbage in the bathroom, right? And the, the, the toilet's overflowing because your plane got delayed. And now, you know, and you got stuck in the middle seat and you're, you know, all of these components. And so what can you do 
from that perspective. And, and part of it is, can you do like a limo service back from that airport home? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so is that how you, yeah. How do you approach that? How do you think about those end experiences? Yeah. Yeah. So those are, those are just some interesting pieces. And I think to your point, if organizations, we, organizations spend a lot of money on these types of things, your user experience, mm. your overall component. Um, and, and I think that there's a element of, uh, you know, minimal marginal gain wins once you start, you know, trying to improve everything and you got to look at Hopefully. those points where you're going to get the biggest bang for your buck. So, yeah. Can we uh, switch over and uh, talk a little bit about embodied cognition? Let's do that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so, so first share a little bit with, uh, with our listeners who might not be familiar with it, Luke, can you tell them about what embodied cognition is and, and, uh, and, and where that comes from? Sure. Sure. So, so this is a hobby interest of mine. So there might be some listeners out there that are going to hear me talk and want to correct me, but I'll, I'll, I'll give it my best go. So, um, so I guess, Historically, in terms of cognition, we've thought about uh, information processing happening in the brain. And it, what it seems is that more and more we're learning that um, our senses influence the way we process information in a way uh, that's a lot stronger than perhaps we'd expected. So, you know, information processing going from just something that happens in the brain to actually something that perhaps is distributed across the body or certainly involves the senses to, to quite a high degree. And there's a Let's take the example of eating a peach, right? You're, you're, you're holding a peach and you could think about the flavor experience as just something that happens on your tongue, but actually it's about the weight of the peach in your hand, the fuzz of the peach against your fingers, uh, the way that it, the skin cracks as you bite through. All of these things kind of come together to create an overall food experience. And there's this, this inspirational researcher uh, called Charles Spence at Oxford University. He runs something called the Cross Modal Research Lab. And he is, is looking at, I guess, the you could call it psychophysics, I guess, the way that different senses, different sensory modalities interact with each other to create an overall, uh, an overall food experience. So let me give you an example. They found that um, when you change the weight of cutlery in a restaurant, you can influence people's uh, ratings of the quality of food as a result. So the heavier the cutlery, the higher the rating of quality of the food people give after the meal versus lighter cutlery. Yeah. And it's like our, our senses are priming us to expect something in, the, in that experience. And because we have that expectation, we're seeking out information to support that particular schema. And, and that then changes the way that we experience the food. And I just think, I think it's magic. I think it's just so cool. Yeah. And well, of course, it's happening on a subconscious level. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Right. And, and, and we've talked about this some other times, but the, uh, a famous study, and again, I, I can't remember who, who ran it, uh, where they... They've done all the different taste tests with with wines and different things, but they actually had people test tasting wine in an fMRI um, scan, and so they were looking at their brain waves as they were mm. doing. It. Now, you know, again, what they were doing is saying, "Oh, here's a really expensive wine, and here's a average wine, and here's a really cheap wine," and and they looked at at how the brain lit up. You know, unbeknownst to them, though, the wine was exactly the same wine, yeah. uh, various different things. 
but you saw in their brain when they were told that it was an expensive wine, those pleasure uh, areas lit up that, that were very different than when they were told it was a, a cheap wine. So the way that you actually tasted the wine, it, it, it's not just, it, I mean, it actually tasted different. For yeah, you. yeah. That, that's the thing, because your brain is processing in very different ways. Yeah. And this is that component that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. You know, they, they've done other experiments where they change the tone of music playing um, and that they found that when uh, people are drinking coffee, when you play music that's got a higher pitch to it, people tend to describe the flavor as sweeter. sweeter. When yep. you have music playing with a lower tonality to it, people actually focus on the bitterness. It's part of the experience of the coffee. And it's, it's the same coffee, right? They're just changing yep. the expectation and the, the, I guess the, the focus that's happening in terms of the, the flavor experience. I just, and I think that, that work is really, really cool. There's well, I was actually a yeah, participant in, 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 yeah. in huh. that uh, a couple of weeks ago. I was in New York and I, I did this thing called the Taste of Music. And we were in a high-end music audio store in a listening room with these. Tim would have been going gaga because they were $15,000 speakers. And the, Amazing. You know, the turntable and everything looked like pieces of art. And he probably would know them. I didn't know, but I'm going, that's beautiful. Anyway, we were drinking wine and eating like popcorn and olives. And they were doing this component where take a sip of the wine. And I am not a big wine guy. I, I can tell, you know, I'm not the guy that takes and sniffs it and tastes it and go, oh yeah, there's a little bit of oak and some apricots. And I hear <laughs> a little smoky flavor. That's not me. I I can do, oh, it's bold and a lot of tannins or it's, yeah. you know, fruity. You know, that's about, that's about, the, that's about, I, I, I can pretty much tell that it's red. That's kind of my. Oh, okay. <laughs> red one. This one's white, right? There you go. And and when we did that, they played different music, and it changed the taste. It it literally changed the taste of the wine. And you could you know with some you tasted more of the tannins, and some it was sweeter. Some you know this wine tasted um, you know, okay to start with. And then it tasted great. And then it tasted awful. And I was like, it's the same wine. Wow. All dependent on the music. All dependent on the music. And the interesting piece, the more interesting piece for me was eating the piece of popcorn. So this, I think goes, goes a little bit to your, uh, peach thing. Right. Um, and the music that they played impacted how crunchy the popcorn felt in my mouth. Wow. Which again, to the to to me, I'm just sitting here trying to figure out the neuroscience behind all of this, and the people there are just this is fun and cool, and this is a you know. And tell so me, did, 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 did they tell you what to expect? Did they? Did no, they, they did not. Wow. That was the interesting yeah. thing. Now, on the so popcorn, they, they did say they they did say before, but they didn't say which music was going to do what. They did right. say they focus in on the saltiness and and the crunchiness of that. In the wine, they didn't say anything. Wow. In the wine, it was just there. So yeah, that's so cool. The thing about crunchiness, though, I think is really interesting. That this uh, this Charles Spence guy, he did another study with Pringles. Called, it's a famous study called the Sonic Chip. Okay. And so one of the issues with Pringles is that if people think that they're a bit stale and they don't eat them, and their product satisfaction obviously comes like drops, right? If they've been open for a couple of days. So what they did was they engineered the freak. The, the uh, what's the best way of saying it? They engineered the sound of the crisp, right? So they, they created a whole series of different Pringles. Some of them had a higher pitch crunch to them. <laughs> and, they, and, they, and they found 
okay, that um, the people eating the higher pitched crunch Pringles, even if they're the same age old, thought they were 15% fresher than the lower pitched uh, Pringles. And so they changed the, 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 the formula and the production process for the Pringles so that people are happier and they think that they last longer just because yeah. their, their experience is that it feels fresher. And it's like, well, yeah, because it sounds fresher. Because it, it, yeah. it, it sounds fresher. fresher. I, I just think that's phenomenal. I mean, coffee is another one. There's this really cool company uh, called Viora. I think they're in Sweden. And they've created, so like coffee's uh, a multi-sensory experience. You've got like yeah. the warmth of the cup, you've got the aroma, you've got the flavor, you've got all that stuff. You think about like most coffee shops that you go to, they have a lid on it where they block any of the aroma coming out. There's just like the drinking hole to come out of. Yeah. And so you think, okay, well, there's this whole aroma priming that should be happening before I take a sip that doesn't happen because they've got the lid on it. They're covering all the smells. And this company, Viora in Sweden, have designed this... Uh, this coffee lid that lets all of the, um, let, essentially lets the aroma out. So you get that olfactory stimulation at the same time that you're drinking the, the coffee as well. I think, yeah, very, really, really cool. I, you know, a very creative space, but you know, I think, I think organizations need to know about this stuff because this is the, where the rubber meets the road of experience, isn't it? This is the, the, the real granular stuff. I thought that, that something like a 40% of our taste experience is driven by our olfactory. Exactly. And then but, but, by our nose, but right? Starbucks put a lid on it with a tiny tasting hole. You don't even get to smell it, you know? What? Well, this, you know, it's, it's one of those great things because you go, yeah, you're missing out on 40% or yeah. even if it's less than that. You're missing out on, on a big part of, of the coffee experience. And so I wanted to go into a little bit about ethics because I think there's some ethical components of this that may or may not be positive. But in, in, in an instance like this, you know, even if you go back to the Pringles, right? Yeah. You could go, oh, they're manufacturing Pringles to make us like them better and various different things. But the experience that you're actually having with those Pringles is a better experience. Yeah. And I think you mentioned it up at the front. It's there's this overlap between customer experience and, and, and good business. And totally. You can and, that. And, 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 and I think um, I think different people fall at different places on this ethics debate. My, yeah. my, my view is, you know, I really respect McDonald's for the experience they deliver, right? I don't go there for a healthy experience. I go there because like, it's great fast food, it's consistent and it doesn't cost that much money and I know what I'm gonna get. That's, that's right. great. You know, with Pringles, you know, it's not about selling people stale chips, but it's about me now feeling okay to eat something because actually the opposite of that might be that I think food is bad when it's not bad and then all that food gets wasted. So. Actually, I think there's different ways of, uh, of thinking about these things. But yeah, I, I agree. I think the ethical debate is interesting. But uh, I think ultimately, as long as you're delivering a, uh, a better customer experience as an individual, and, uh, you know, and that overlaps with, with you know, what the business outcome needs to be, then personally, I'm, I, you know, I'm comfortable living in a world where there's loads of really interesting experiences for me to either choose to take part in or, or not choose to take part in. Even even if your choosing might actually be guided by some subconscious um, priming. But so what's the alternative? There, there's, yeah. there's no there's no like naked experience. There's no you can't not prime right. It, it's either you're either taking some control of it or, or you're not. So look at look at price perception. You know you think about something like anchoring. You can tell somebody I'm going to anchor you now, and like it still works. You know they still yeah. get the same effect. But, you know, if, if I were going to see a price, I don't know, if I were going to see a number and there was no priming, then I'm going to now 
see that number as being higher than if there had been priming. So it's kind of, I think it's impossible to escape this stuff. You're either choosing to see it as part of uh, your remit of things you want to try and influence and, and, and control, or you're going to just leave it to chance. And I don't know, personally, I think, why not get creative and think about how to use these things? Yeah, and and, and again, I think priming is, is powerful, but it also isn't... Uh, uh, you can't overcome priming, right? Yeah. And there's a variety of different pieces of that. You still, you there, there is an element of free choice. You're not being so guide coerced into something that that is there. It's interesting. We had a, I had a, a, a side conversation with Bob Cialdini um, when we met him at a, at a conference, and we were talking about the replication crisis and various different pieces. Mm-hmm. And one of the interesting things that he talked about, in particular, is are we controlling for all of the variables in these replication studies? Um, how do we know that they're not primed, um, reprimed after the initial prime has been been done? And it, it brought up an interesting component um, to me, which were two, two factors. One, yeah, I mean, in order to really replicate something, you're going to have to absolutely make it as, identical. As, identical as much as you can. But then B, going back to this other part, if that prime can get be overridden so easily by maybe there's a, a different, there's a poster on the wall or something, or yeah. the color of the door is a different color, then how, how powerful is that prime in and of itself? Mm-hmm. Um, which goes back into this. Yes, primes are important. All of these things lead into this. And, and at some point it makes a difference, but they are not insurmountable primes. So yeah, absolutely right. Absolutely right. But you know, once you know about primes, then you can use them yourself, right? You know, if you've got to get in a certain mindset for a certain type of work, then you set the stage to do that, right? If I've got like deep focus work to do, I have a routine. I listen to classical music and I drink Earl Grey. That's my Earl Grey tea. <laughs> like, I don't know why, but that makes me that makes me feel a bit smarter. And you know, I only do that when I've got that type of work to do. But that's my routine. And so when I smell the Earl Grey and I hear the music, like I, I know it's time to focus. And that's- we're gonna have. We're going to have to send you some socks that are I am smart socks with Einstein on them. So you you do that. It's exactly true. And and I was um, just thinking about this the other day because, again, we we had a conversation with Bob Cialdini uh, podcast. And uh, in that, we started talking primes and various different things. And we talked about do you does he use primes like musical primes mm-hmm. for himself you just said you use classical and he he said he didn't except for in like the, the 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 music coming on or off when he's going to present and he's now very specific about it um but it got me to thinking you know we have primes as you said there the the natural world is full of primes we're, we're always being primed yeah. for very different things but do can, if we self-prime ourselves, is that more powerful than having you know, primes that we're not necessarily aware of. In other words, you going and getting Earl Grey tea and putting on classical music, me using my socks, Tim. What? what? <laughs> I had some primes. <laughs> <or> whatever. <laughs> I keep my primes to myself. Okay. But I, I don't know if there's any research out there that shows there's a that that a self-induced prime has a yeah. stronger impact on our behavior than, say, a 
subliminal prime um, does. Anyway, sorry, I'm going would, down. It would, it would feel like it would, right? I mean, you've kind of, in terms of the motivation, you know, reflective versus automatic, you're kind of, you're layering on two levels there. So it, it feels like it should be more powerful, but yeah, who knows? It, who knows? it, it, makes, it makes implicit sense, but I don't know if there's any empirical evidence to back it up. So, 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 okay. Matt, so do, you, do you have multiple pairs of these Einstein socks or do you have to pull on dirty ones if you've got to do like no, I, two days in a row? <laughs> I have I have multiple pairs, but I also have I have I have different socks for different things. Oh, so wow. I have oh yeah, I have um uh my my unicorn and narwhal socks for for when I feel that I need to have an extra kind of magical spark about me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, <laughs> yep. I have thinker sock. I actually have the thinker rodents thinker, and and I use those socks again for some other more deep reflective kind of things. The smart, the the, the Einstein socks are when I feel like I, I need to be really intelligent in front of a, a group of people is when I typically put those on. You know, there's, there's got to be a business here. I always thought it would be cool if you could create a placebo shop. You know, like, so you could go in and you could, like, choose different placebo medicines that do different things. Because the whole thing with placebo is, like, even when you know it's a placebo, it still has an effect. So you think, well, great, let's, what, here's some confidence pills that are just sugar pills, but you'll probably feel more confident. So yeah, here you go. Here you go. I love that. I love it. Oh, you need to be a little bit more outgoing. Hey, come over here. We got the purple. Okay, you, sit, you, you sit down with a doctor. They listen to what you need, and then they give you the same pills to everybody, and but they tell you it's going to do something different. I'm sure it would work. I'm sure it would yeah. work. Wow, I, I think I think they call that palm reading. <laughs> um, but I want to go back to uh, classical music uh, for a little bit uh, as a segue to go all the way back to the beginning of our conversation about uh, a, a, an, an authentic Moog versus uh, versus a sampler. So just to, to let Kurt know, uh, Moog was um, um, actually a, a guy from England who developed uh, one of the very first synthesizers. So if you, if, uh, t- as a way of reference, uh, Rocket Man, mm-hmm. uh, the Elton John song, uh, features uh, a Moog synthesizer okay. so to get some of those wacky sounds. Yeah. Uh, 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 Davy Johnson did a lot on guitar, but, but the really wacky sounds come from uh, a Moog synthesizer. So, Depeche Mode used them. I actually knew one. Oh, 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 all right. Okay, snap. Uh, okay, but a sampler is sort of a modern synthesizer, and, and there are modern versions or modern samples of Mogs as well. So um, this gets to this gets to sort of the question of uh, uh, what is your interest? You you have an interest in in old analog uh, synthesizers? Yeah. Well, what, 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 well, analog synthesizers. So. Um... So I can't play. I'm 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 uh, musically inept in terms of playing, but I I do love the sound. My brother collects analog synthesizers, and uh, probably my one of my favorite times in the year is the couple of times we get to go to my parents' garage, and uh, we've got like big club speakers in there. We plug in all the different uh, kit, and we just make weird noises for hours and hours and hours. And uh, what he's been collecting is all of the new Korg series. So I'm not sure if you've had it have a, had a look at any of those, but Korg have been re releasing uh, some of these really affordable analog synthesizers and drum machines, all that kind of stuff. And just the sound is just, uh, it's heaven. And there's something, there's something about playing with a synthesizer physically rather than doing something on a computer that the way that the sound meanders and changes and uh, evolves over time, that's, uh, it's just, it's just so great. It's just fantastic. In terms of getting into a state of flow, it's just, it's perfect. 
Well, is, and isn't there something kind of kinesthetic about it that, yeah. that with, an, with a synthesizer, you're actually moving buttons with your fingers. Yeah. You're, you're having to, you know, to touch the display yeah. and move faders and, yeah. and, and roll things. Yeah, absolutely. The, the digital one is, to, is just on the computer. Is that how that difference? Yeah, it's, it's not as tactile. You know, you're clicking a mouse around and trying to click and hold is just so different to, you know, holding a knob and twisting it or pushing yeah. a fader. It's, uh, it's easier to kind of enjoy it more and experiment, I think, when you've got like a physical piece of hardware in front of you rather than just doing everything in inside software. Yeah, I like I like waveform synthesizers. I'm actually a big fan of the old Yamaha DX7, which was one of the, the first waveform-based synthesizers. And yeah. so have this infinite control over the sounds in this luscious analog environment it's yeah. just um, it's just it, yeah it's just fabulous okay a little bit of nerdville there so yes yeah, it, it, that's fine that's, okay but let's let's uh, let's shift away from nerdville because we probably have already lost 90 percent of our yeah, we got pretty nerdy there that's good though <laughs> that but um, tell us about some of your musical likes like grizzly bear Oh, you know. I, I like I like everything. I think. Do, do you remember when you you could first download music on Napster? Do you remember when that happened? I was at university. This is what like, I was such a child. I don't remember that. Uh, it's like, it like two thousand. What would that have been? Two thousand two, two thousand three, something like that. Just that idea that you could suddenly get like anything at any time. All that music you could collect. It just blew me away. And so I think at that moment where downloads started. People moved away from the idea of having to buy an album to just being able to buy an individual track or collect an individual track. And I think that 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 created certainly, I think here in the UK, like a real shift in people's tastes because all of a sudden you didn't have to, you know, invest this you know amount of money in buying an album. You could just take one little bit of something you liked, and so you went from people being really into a particular genre to just being into loads of different things. And uh, you know, now I think. My, my view is I'm kind of open to any music, weird and wonderful stuff from, you know, Aphex Twin, which is probably at the edge of like pretty experimental electronic music. Not very, yeah. not very accessible, but, you know, if you bear with it, there's some real brilliance in that. Um, all the way through to you know, at the moment, sort of the modern classical composers or contemporary classical composers like um, Niels Fram or Olafur Arnold that are just doing this really deep emotional orchestral classical music uh yeah i just I, I just absolutely love it i'm i'm uh i'm a music junkie i, ha I have to constantly find new music it's uh it, it's definitely an addiction it's definitely an addiction so how do you go about doing that do you are you on spotify and then you kind of click <laughs> so and Next, next one, next one. So my, my approach to this has changed a lot over the years. So I used to use, do you remember Stumble Upon? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I got to like 40,000 stumbles I, I clocked in the other day on, on Stumble Upon, mainly around music. So that was like a good source of music, but that kind of dried up. Uh, yeah. Listening to uh, different mixtapes on YouTube and then Shazamming the tunes that I like, I find that yeah. like a really good source of music. I've got Apple Music, I've got Spotify subscription, I've got SoundCloud subscription. Um, and I probably dedicate like 30 or 40 minutes a day of just listening, uh, yeah, binge, binging through tracks. But it's, I, I, have a really, I have a really poor approach to it. I kind of play a tune and I skip to the middle, see if I like the sound of it, and then I decide whether I'm going to listen to the tune or not. And if I don't like the sound of it, then I skip to the next one. Oh, it's just terrible, isn't it? You know, imagine being that producer and it's like, you, you, you didn't listen to anything that I built at the beginning. But yeah. <laughs> It's, no, it's you're a numbers it. game, right? You've just got to keep listening to loads of stuff. You'll find the you'll find the gems. 
No, that's just like an A&R executive. You get, you get 10 seconds at the beginning to see how the song sets yeah. up and then you get to a minute. And, it, and if the hook isn't hitting you yeah. within 10 seconds of, of the one minute mark, then you're done. And I think so, it's so interesting. Like you, you do know at the beginning of a tune, there's, there's something about the tone or the, the tempo, or the rhythm that you kind of, you get that sense of, oh, okay, yeah, this is, this is going to be one of the ones. And, um, so I, I don't know. I, yeah. That, that, so that's kind of how I go about it. And then I'm very geeky in the way that I organize my music as well. So I've got like, uh, well, within iTunes, you know, you can do all the, the star ratings. So I kind of star yeah. rating everything. So it's, I use that as my bookmarking. And then I have these smart playlists that, you know, I can put up like a, a 2011 four star plus. So I can just go back to the, that year. And what was all the stuff in that year that I thought was really cool. And I kind of, yeah, that's how I split it all out. But Wow. I like the year component of it. It yeah. brings back some memory elements, I'm sure. Yeah. And kind of yeah, puts you back into that, that moment. Those are, that's, that's, I might have to start doing but that. The, I like that. But for, for me, what's really missing in music at the minute is, is a intelligent shuffle experience. So like the, like the problem is, is we've all got so much music in our collections now and so much music we really, really love. But like, how do you rediscover stuff? And I think, you know, the idea of pressing shuffle and it being this random skip through stuff is just really weak because actually, you know, my computer should know that on a Friday, I listen to different music than I listen to on a Sunday afternoon, right? It's Friday yeah. evening. So if I hit shuffle, play stuff that's in a certain type of category or genre. And it's this, I call it shuffler toning. You know, when you like, you're going through shuffle and you just keep getting great song, great song after great song. It's really rare. Releases what I call shuffler toning. Uh, you always serotonin for music in your, in your brain. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I do think that somebody could create a cool product that, that, that made more of that shuffle experience. But, uh. Yeah, I think I think there's something because you either get into like I, I'm going to shuffle on this genre, and then the genre, and then it's all of that. And every once in a while, I want a little bit of variety. That, yeah. that I just throw in something that's not, you know, if I'm listening to you know my American folk music, right? I don't want a heavy industrial yeah, music no. to be as my thing. But exactly. give me something outside of that genre that is relatively there that I could go, oh, this yeah. is compliments. I, I quite like like trying to find, yeah, I quite yeah. like trying to find the record label that released an artist I like and then going through the other artists from that record label. Like that's quite a nice way of finding things that are similar but, uh, but a little bit different, certainly with electronic music. All right. That's cool. Thank well, you, Luke. Luke, thank you. This has been absolutely fun insightful and uh we just really appreciate you coming on the show great to chat really enjoyed it welcome to our grooving session where tim and i groove on what we learned from our behavior grooves interview have a free-flowing discussion on some of those topics and whatever else comes into our booba kiki brains Ooh, booba kiki is your brain more booba or more kiki i'm pretty sure my name's my my brain is more booba you think so i do yeah I, i'm pretty sure and yours Oh, I'm a definite booba. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's all soft and mushy and flowy. It's not sharp and angular. No. It isn't that precise. I, I, I admire and kind of sometimes have a little bit of jealousy for those people who do have mm. kind of kiki brains, those ones who can just... You have actually... I would say, Your brain is more kiki. What? You can remember those names. You remember 
the component. I mean, you have these sharp, really good components. <laughs> and I'm judgmental as hell. <laughs> so, so I guess... I guess Me, I'm this booba flowing... That is such bullshit. You are, you are a businessman. You are a CEO. You are a driving decisions, let's get shit done now kind of a guy. But my brain is booba. <laughs> it's very... Flowy and all sorts of... Oh, I don't know. So, all right. Enough on our booba kiki. Well, it just... I have to ask a question. Is there is there a self-image or a self-identity aspect of booba kiki? And then there's the actual experience in the world. Ooh, that's a really good question. I don't know. That would be a, a study for, that we need to We should to do, do that, yeah. yeah. I don't know how we would do it, but, you know, any listener out there who wants to do a research study with us, contact us. Let us know. And Definitely. We'll, we'll look at the Booba Kiki self-identity conundrum. <laughs> All right. So, Tim, what do you what did you take from Luke's conversation, our conversation with Luke? There were three big things that came that I that I came away with. The, okay. The I, priming, I think we that would be one one thing. The second thing is the experiencing versus remembering self. But the first, uh, the, the the third thing, or the things that we, I think we should start talking about is peak end effect. So we start with the end. Let's start with the end in mind. <laughs> the peak end. <laughs> The peak end component or end peak, uh, I think, was really fascinating. The the one piece that I loved what he said, uh, what Luke was saying, is that it is it's not this component of really making these emotional connections. It's this creating a departure from the expectation. Yeah. In his yeah. conversation about waiting on hold for this really fancy restaurant that's really hard to get into. And, you know, that the component of that was, well, they're, they're reading Alice in Wonderland. (laughs) And it was a departure from the expectation. It wasn't, you know, something that, wow, that's going to make this vast difference in my overall experience. But it was a departure that made that whole time seem different and, and, set it apart. Different from expectations. Different from expectations. So I I had a recent retail experience in in getting my hair cut at a new new salon and uh, called to make the reservation. And they said, well, who, you know, who should we make it with? And I said, I I don't know. This is going to be my first time. So they said, well, let's, let's talk through your hair. Let's talk through what, what you want out of it. I don't have those experiences. <laughs> okay, well, just just play along. <laughs> I'll remember my remembering self when remember I did have self. hair. Okay, go. So, uh, so, so then they make a recommendation. I'm like, fine, that that sounds great. And then uh, a week before, they call and they say, "Do you have any questions?" They call and just say, "We're just, we're, you know, you've got your appointment next week, but do you have any questions?" No. A hair salon. A hair salon. Then uh, the day before, I get a text saying, uh, "Here's you, your time. Here's your time. Just, just remember, if you want to cancel, press stop. You know, or you cancel." And then the morning of, they called because there was a big snowstorm locally that okay. that day, and they called and they said, "We just want to. If you want to cancel, that's fine. But we thought we'd just call you just to check in because if you feel like you're able to get out on the road, we've got time right now. You could just come." Okay. Right now, because there's been so many cancellations. But if you want to cancel, that's totally cool. We can reschedule. I thought, this was over-the-top customer experience for me. Beyond expectations. Way beyond expectations. So when I walked in the door, I felt like my feet were a foot off the ground. Because I just felt so good. Like, these people are going to take care of me. Yeah. 
And so they, it was terrific. They, again, that component of this going beyond what was expected changed that dynamic of the haircut was good. I noticed you had a really nice haircut. I, I think I commented on it. You did. You I did. don't know if I commented that it was, wow, the best haircut I've ever seen you have. No. But the overall experience for you was such that that made a difference. It did. It okay. absolutely it made a, it made a huge difference. And then so and other retailers could could invest in similar kinds of over expectation things to improve their their experience. Well, it was the the conversation that we had with Luke and talking about fast food restaurants. And what is the last thing you do at a fast food oh, restaurant? Oh, I, I know it's so bad, right? You grab up all your garbage and you put it in the trash, which probably isn't a peak component. <laughs> well, it could be a peak in a negative way though. It, exactly. It could be a peak in the wrong direction, right? Yeah. So then you, you you get these and again, the whole component with the net promoter scores of various versus takeout versus this, all of that was really interesting. Right. I was I, I was wondering, and so Chick-fil-A mm-hmm. has been doing really, really well lately. I believe I'm not that in tune with the fast food market, but I make that assumption. So listeners, if that's not the case, let me know. But I'm wondering if part of that, hey, they have really great chicken sandwiches. I like them, right? But they also pick up your trash that is prior Prior to you leaving the table. Prior to you leaving the table. And Culver's does too, right? Culver's and and Shoney's on the West Coast. These are all U.S. uh, uh, based um, retailers of food, fast food organizations. Fast food places, but that has to change that component. And I don't think they're doing it because they're thinking about the peak end rule and, and that. I think it's this customer service ethos that they have. And I don't think you're you know, Salon was also thinking peak end rule. Probably they, not. They were, but, but those separate, I think, organizations that are just doing the expected versus going above and beyond, and the peak end rule can explain maybe some of the success that they then are attributed, why people refer to them, um, to others, why they gush about them. And those are things that you would go, well, no, I'm going to refer, you know, Culver's because they have the butter burger and those butter burgers are awesome. Well, there's probably a little bit more to that. There's probably some of this aspect of, yeah, and I don't have to pick up my trash and throw my trash out so, or Chick-fil-A doing the same thing. So I, I wonder if, uh, if, if there's someone who has done the work to tease out the difference between uh, the peak end effect versus, you know, our memories. Like what I'm wondering is, is do we conflate uh, a good peak experience, a positive peak experience, with just an overall, overall good experience. Let, let, let me give you an example. So, so if I'm eating at this fast food place that picks up my garbage before I leave, do and maybe their motivation is to provide a what they consider a luxurious experience, you know, okay. slightly more luxurious. But I come away and I say, oh, I, I really liked it. And as as you're alluding to, maybe I'm thinking of, oh, the burger was good. Yeah. But in, if in, but in fact, what is causing me or priming me to actually make that comment is the experience of having my garbage picked up so that when I walk out the door, I'm not burdened by throwing my, my trash away. Right. And I, that's an interesting concept. I'm not sure how much of that confluence comes across, but I think there is the overall rating of the experience, at least my understanding of peak end. 
okay. is that when you, if you were to look at two different graphs of the overall experience from when the time you walk into the door to the time you walk out of the door, and you had two different ones, and the overall experience at one store is is higher, right? So mm-hmm. across the board, everything is a little bit better, but the one has a higher peak, positive peak, and ends higher versus the other one that if you just took the average, it was probably, it didn't have as high a peak and it didn't have as high of an end. That we would, in a, in a reflection component, rate that one with the higher peak and the higher end as a better overall experience. Yes. Yes, we would. Even though on average, let's say, you know, experience A had a better overall average but didn't have the peak and the end. But experience B had a lower overall average but had a higher peak and a higher end. Experience B would be remembered as being better. Well, because it all comes down to those 300 millisecond moments that we call now. Oh, there you go. Let's <laughs> right? move into let's move into that remembering self versus experiencing self. Man, I, I don't re- remember where I, I heard Kahneman or read about Danny Kahneman talking about this, but he brought up this fabulous question of if you were, would you go on a vacation if you knew at the end of it, when you stepped on the, on the plane or into the car to, or walked in your door, you forgot everything that happened? And that is a mind-blowing question for me. That I, I, I have no idea how I would answer that because there's a part of me that says, I would just, all I care is about the experiences. And then there's a part of me that's like, no way, I wouldn't do the experience if I couldn't remember it. Yeah. And I don't know, how would you answer it? Do you know? I don't know. I mean, I know that if I couldn't remember it, I it's definitely not going to have the same appeal. Uh, as you're going through it. As you're going through it, even as you're prepping for it, right? So I think there's this, using the vacation analogy, there's this anticipation of the uh, vacation. There's the experience of the vacation, and then there's the remembering of the vacation. And there are three very distinct components. And I think each one you can maximize your utility or your enjoyment of each of those. And that doesn't mean that that's the same. The, and I think, I don't know if it's Kahneman or who it is, but they're talking about in a vacation kind of component, you're going, say you're going camping. You anticipate the camping, you plan for it, you do all that kind of stuff. That's really fun. You go camping and on day two, starts to rain and it's cold and it's kind of miserable and then the the experiencing self during that time um kind of not really enjoying it you know Mm -hmm. but you're huddled around a fire with your family your friends and you're doing this but then in the remembering component that experience of being huddled around the fire with the rain and being kind of cold takes on a whole different element of it, it we mu- survived. And right. Wow, wasn't that this? It was maybe not enjoyable. But we might romanticize it. But we romanticize it. And yeah. there's a that's the story we tell. 
Well, this this reminds me of uh, Ron Kivitz's work with uh, he did a, a study, a longitudinal study with uh, university uh, Columbia University grads. Okay, and uh, he talked to seniors uh, right after spring break and said, "Okay, so how you know, get, get, show of hands, who who's who stayed in town and studied during spring break and who left and went and partied and had a blast." And so so he goes to those that that left. Uh, and had a, a lot of time, a lot of fun times, and said, so what's your regret about, about leaving? And, and very high level of regret. They said we should have stayed. Okay. We, we, it would have really been better if we just would have stayed and stayed. Because I now have to cram and do all this other work in the immediate, in That's the right. now. And, and, and those who stayed behind and studied had very low regret for not going because they're like, no, I got a lot of this work done. Then he went to the five-year uh, anniversary grads, the 10 year and the 50 year, he was able to get a bunch of 50 year grads. Okay. And the farther out he went, the more the, 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 the curves changed. So if you didn't go, if you stayed behind and studied higher regret over time for not going and partying. And, and if you, if you did go lower regret for going, which makes intuitive sense to us, right? You, you, what do you remember long term? Do you remember sitting in the in your dorm room studying, or do you remember this experience of going somewhere that is out there and wow, we had this time? And you remember great experience girls that we met or the guys that we met or the, those components, <laughs> right? And I, I just want to say that was a kiki brain component. <laughs> okay. You, you know, Ron Kivitz, this longitude, no study from 19, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's a kiki brain component right there. Guilty as charged. All right. So I think that end peak and the the remembering versus that experiencing self, I think are really key pieces. And I loved the last part that Luke was talking about is, are we designing for that experience or do we design for the remembrance of that yeah. experience? Wasn't that a great question? Yeah. Because it terrific. shifts how we think about designing products, how we design services. And with that moment or, or that framework, not that moment, that frame, it changes how we might think about actually developing out services and products. Yeah. And it's hard, by the way. I think it's harder. That's much more difficult for the the product designers, for the space designers, for the for the people who are trying to create and uh, manage the customer experience, it's a lot harder to say what are what's going to be memorable. Yeah, if designing for the memory self is a, a much higher bar. Right, you can create, you can do all these qualitative tests on this chicken sandwich and how good it tastes. Yes, and all of those factors. It's much harder to design this. So when you the overall experience, what are those, those peak and end components that you're going to remember to, remember, yeah. to then maximize those experiences? But again, Luke, I think, brings up this component of it's that departure from the expectation. So maybe it's looking at what are those low expectation points and being able to make little adjustments around that and really keying in on some of those. Maybe that's a way of looking at it. Could be. All right. Okay, what else? What else did you want to talk about, Kurt? I have to talk priming. <laughs> of course. It oh, is. Yes. Uh, it, it's in your blood. It's one of those things I've just fascinated by priming, right? And, and there's two things on this. So uh, we started to discuss this 
self-priming versus having primes kind of thrust upon us and the element of are you aware of a prime being applied to you right. or is this a uh, unconscious prime that if you were to ask you would go i don't know what are you talking about yeah completely subconscious Com some yeah completely at that unconscious level right or that subconscious level not unconscious and I think that is a key piece. And then I, I, I want to also talk a little bit about the pr the ethics of priming. We've, we've talked about that a few times in different yeah. things. But, but let's go into that self-priming. So there is that aspect, and I think Luke brought it up, saying you're acting on two components, right? There's this element of, of the prime itself and then this element of aligning with your self-identity and, and, and goals and objectives. And so that self-prime may be more uh, impactful. Your thoughts, what, what do you think? Well, I, I think it is because we have the ability, uh, theoretically, to align that self-prime with, with our self-identity, with our goals, with our aspirations, what we want to accomplish. Or So there's both a, a future self that we're imagining and a present self that we're imagining when, when we're creating that prime. So it seems natural from my perspective, that the the self-induced or self-created prime is going to be more powerful than than something that we are completely unaware of. So that lends, or, or even aware of, uh, but but not self-induced. Right. So that lends itself into: Can we design our environment to be this priming machine? <laughs> To, to help achieve wow. the goals wow. that we have we've set for ourselves. Yeah, and and at what point does that become weird? <laughs> yeah. or weird yes. is probably the wrong term. What does it become too much, and it, it has a backfire component because it's you're possible. you're you're overprimed. And to what degree is it where? Yeah, that is actually really powerful. So I wake up, I have I have my clothing, my socks, my undershirts, my t-shirts, my tie, whatever it is that I am self-priming myself in what I wear. I might have notes up on uh, my mirror in the bathroom in the morning that, you know, are these motivational sayings that keep me on pumped over here the, the soundtrack that you're listening to as you're getting dressed or maybe even the soundtrack that woke you up the soundtrack that woke you that wakes you up the soundtrack that it, you're wearing when you get dressed the component of having visual images um what i have as my uh screensaver you know mm -hmm. the component of on my phone what are some of those do i have do i have timers that come in so can you design an entire environment that is driving you to achieve the goals and be designed to help you do that. Yes. And is that weird? Yes, 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 <laughs> yes, and yes. All yes. Yes, it can be designed. Yes, it would be weird. And the question for me is, would it make how much of a difference would it make? Well, and that's assuming there would be some impact. Right. Assuming that but how would you measure it? And is it is it a measurable difference? Is it a meaningful difference? Right. And, and, and to that degree, this is where I almost get into, is a self-prime more impactful than a unknown prime? 
because I think sometimes with a self-prime, it may actually not be as impactful because you know you're doing it to yourself. And so there's a consciousness part that happens with it. So, so that's, that knowledge would dilute the effect? I think the knowledge could potentially dilute the effect. And now, I don't know. This is all hypothetical. This is all a component of, of thinking about it. I, I don't, I, I, if I had to put a percentage on it, I would probably put a percentage in saying that the self-prime, I, I feel more likely that a self-prime is more powerful. But I also have, have doubts. So there's a 30% chance that maybe it isn't because maybe there's some component of saying, I know what I'm trying to do to myself. And so I'm going to actually reject that because I'm, I, I know I'm trying to influence myself. And when somebody's trying to influence me, even if it's myself that's trying to influence me, <laughs> I'm going to push back against it. I think that could be something that's real. So uh, I, I think uh, Francesca Gina did, uh, Gino, who was a professor at Harvard, did a study, uh, did it, and it wasn't a study. She was giving a presentation to a bunch of CEOs. Okay. And she's in a, a, a classic business suit and pumps and looks very professional. And then there's a break. And, and she goes into the back room and decides that she's going to put on bright red Converse sneakers. Okay. And she comes back out, and the feedback that she gets is that that everybody really enjoyed the second half of the presentation more than the first half. So sh she was she was interested in this uh, what she calls the rebel effect. Yeah. But you got, I have to kind of wonder how did it impact her? Yeah. How did it prime her? Because now she's thinking I'm a rebel because of my red shoes. Yes. I, yes. I, I we'll have to ask her. Okay. We will. Let's we'll do ask that. her about that. Let's do that. So your component of actually how much does it actually impact you gets into this ethic component then. Yes, yes. And and I think this is a, a real piece. And we talk about, well, we talked with Luke about, yeah, do you, as an organization, are, are you just letting those primes be by chance or are you trying to design those primes? And there's a part of me that goes, oh, that's freaky. And there's an ethical component of saying, yeah, I'm going to set these primes up to influence your buying decision. Your behavior as, a, as, a, uh, as an employee. As as employee, yeah. as a consumer. Yeah. You know, we talked about the McDonald's and what's on their screen and how they're showing, you know, the groupings as opposed to individuals and not showing pricing and various different things and all these very thoughtful components of how they're designing that experience to get you to buy that new product or a product that is more um, uh, higher priced. Yeah. I, how much choice do we have when the priming is completely subconscious versus a nudge where, where, where we should be aware? To be a nudge, right, we should be aware. We should be aware of the alternatives even though the choice architects who are designing that are saying, we believe that there is something that's better for you. It's, it's in your best self-interest to do, to do one thing or another. Well, that but nudge, you still have the choice. Yeah, and again, Thaler and, and Sunstein talk about nudges as being a positive, and there's issues on, well, who determines what's positive and yep. what's not positive, right? And, 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 and that, that question exists with, the primer, with people who are designing the primes, right? right? 
and and to that degree when the organization who is designing for a profit component and not necessarily about customer experience there's something that feels a little wrong about that but again that's what companies are designed to do they are designed to make a profit for their stakeholders the way that you know a publicly traded corporation there's a fiduciary duty to try to maximize that profit yeah so to what end to what or, end? or to what means does does it matter of course it does right it does it matters how we get to that profit yeah um and i think that's where behavioral scientists need to be thinking about these things and particularly applied yes. behavioral scientists where they're applying it into their work and does it have a benefit for the customer does it have a as we you know as luke said there's a there's this you know kind of confluence of benefit for the organization benefit for the customer then that seems better if it's just a benefit for the organization then it's starting to get into some of those ethical components so yeah okay so yeah i have a musical question for you oh my gosh this is new I wasn't expecting this. When this may be a peak experience for me because it's, <laughs> oh, wait, no, it's not. It's all the time. When we're talking to Luke, one of the things that I thought was really fun was talking about these old analog and um, uh, waveform, d- different types of, of synthesizers. Yes. The, the early versions of the synthesizers. Yeah. So you, like part of the core of your great bands in your life right were synth bands oh yeah definitely you look at depeche mode you look at new order you look at early ministry all of those bands in the 80s i mean depeche mode was very very much like we do not have a guitar as a key component of our music yeah i mean they designed their music not to have guitar um, they would use maybe little pieces of guitar riffs up until Violator when Personal Jesus came out, and then they, they had they the guitar, and now they use guitar all the time. But in the 80s, in all of their speak and spell to early records, early, early records they were a synth band, and even to a point where the, the drums were synth. Right, and they, right. they used all of that, and so they brought in those components, and so yeah, that's a a key piece of my my musical experience with well, synth, and, you know, bands. And thing. in addition to the Juno Sevens and the Prophets, uh, different kind of Prophet, the Prophet synthesizers, uh, but they also use many Moogs. They use right? many Moogs uh, in in concert. I, I understand as well, right? Yeah, I Depeche Mode used many Moogs. They used Roland. They had a couple other kind of stuff but yeah i know they they used the moog so yeah yeah it's a sound that i i thoroughly you know enjoy and even today when i hear music and i hear that that synth sound there's that remembering self that brings me back (laughs) into into those times and i tend to i tend to gravitate towards that type of music like today if you look at some of the music Muse is a they, they use some synth right and, and and have some of that that sound uh, and I and I tend to gravitate towards some of that sound. Yeah, so. Adele's last record is full of of really intense synth sounds that are sampled. A lot of them are actually coming from old Moog sounds originally. Okay, um, 
but something that when I was when I was looking at, so I think that there's great the Moog specifically. Bob Moog uh, created just an amazing instrument. In the early days, you had to you know uh, move sliders and twist buttons and and plug things in you know patch cords, and it was like a machine you know to make this thing work. So it was complicated, and actually getting good sounds out of it was took a fair amount of effort. Okay, and there wasn't a user manual that just said just you know, follow this, follow these steps. Like today, you just go up to a keyboard and you say, well, I want the extra, you know, clavier. And so you just press a button and that's what you've got. Um, but in those days, it, w- it was much harder. But I think about some of the sounds like from, from Kraftwerk, yeah. the German band, Autobahn. Von, von, von on the Autobahn, you know. Um, uh, Emerson, Lincoln, Palmer's Lucky Man. Okay. Or Edgar Winter's Frankenstein. Great execution of the Moog sound. Yeah. But what really surprised me was the very first recording of a Moog synthesizer. I have no idea. Was on a Monkees record. The Monkees. The Monkees. It was called Daily Nightly. That was the first known recording of a Moog synthesizer. Oh my gosh! How crazy is that? Uh, made for TV band. <laughs> totally. <laughs> there you go. I don't know. It's just nuts. All right. So. Um... Thank you, listeners. Hopefully this was an enjoyable and insightful episode for you. If you thought so, please, please help us build this community that you are a part of and give us a like on Apple Podcast or whatever other pod service that you use. Leave a review or just recommend this. Send this to a friend. And with that, keep keep on on grooving. grooving.